Introduction Welcome to the Newcastle Lions Heritage Trail Audio Guide. This guide features a series of tracks that tell the story of the village from earliest times through to the present day. The guide is designed as an accompaniment to our heritage trail, but you can also enjoy it from the comfort of your own home. Wherever you are, we hope you enjoy the journey with us. Newcastle Lyons is a historic medieval village nestled in the rural southwestern corner of County Dublin. This is a place with an ancient history, a history that remains preserved in the landscape everywhere you look. The settlement here developed in the shadow of Leavin, Lyons Hill, one of Leinster's great royal sites where kings of Leinster were inaugurated in early medieval times. The area was also home to some of Ireland's earliest Christians. As well as leaving their mark on the land, they left a permanent association with St Finian, a name that remains closely associated with the village to this day. The present village of Newcastle Lyons was founded by the Normans as a royal manor and the village retains some of the best-preserved traces of medieval settlement to be found anywhere in Ireland. During the course of this guide, we will explore the story of this special place, from tales of mythological murder to epics of international sporting glory and everything in between. Along the way, we will learn about the lives and experiences of countless generations of Newcastle residents. From how the medieval villagers built their homes to how 19th century children learned their ABCs. As you move around the village, don't miss the vibrant green Victorian water pumps, which date from the mid to late 1800s. Our journey today will take us through centuries of Newcastle Lions' fascinating history as we uncover some of the village's most enduring stories. The Newcastle Lions Heritage Trail is some five kilometres in length and was developed by the Newcastle Lions Heritage Trail Committee to celebrate Newcastle's heritage and rural setting. Please be aware that Newcastle Lions can be a busy place, so take care when walking between the various stops. For now, we will begin our audio guide starting at the town's medieval manor at the heart of the village. Please make your way west along Main Street towards our first stop outside St Finian's Church of Ireland. Origins of a medieval manor Welcome to Stop A, St Finian's Church of Ireland and the beginning of our story. And what a tale it is. There is no doubt that the story of this place is an ancient one. Newcastle Lions buzzed with activity long before the medieval village was established. Just two kilometres to the southwest stands Leaven, Lions Hill, one of the great royal sites of Leinster. Its name is one of Irish legend the site where Princess Leven, the fair-robed, was slain with her lover. More than 1,000 years ago, the hill was the inauguration site of the Idun Chadak kings, who later became known as the Mach Gilamachumuk. They held sway over these lands before the Anglo-Normans arrived. Lyons Hill was the domain of kings, but the earliest major settlement at Newcastle Lyons was likely dedicated to God. It is thought that what became the heart of the Norman village was once the site of a great religious enclosure, 700 metres in width. Tantalising glimpses of this early church site can still be seen in the form of the granite cross and pillar stone in the Church of Ireland grounds. The site may have had connections to the 5th century St Finian, 
known as the Tutor of the Saints of Ireland. Finian, who taught both Columcill and Ciaran of Clonmacnoise, has an enduring connection with Newcastle. He lends his name to the nearby Holy Well, to the local school and to the village GAA club. St Finian's Holy Well still remains a popular place of pilgrimage to this day. Local stories tell of the well's healing properties. One example tells of a man suffering from lameness, who, having bathed his foot in water from the well for three weeks, was cured. It may have been the royal and religious connections such as these that attracted the Normans to this area. They arrived in the late 12th century and chose to establish a settlement here, which lives on to this day. First, they built a large mound and topped it with a wooden castle known as a mot. A visualisation of what this castle may have looked like can be seen on the panel in front of you. The mound still stands in a nearby field. From it, the new settlers were able to control the countryside. It was this new castle that gave Newcastle Lions its name. The mot became the heart of what was known as a manorial settlement. Ruled by a lord, these parcels of land consisted of the lord's personal farm, or domain, and territory he rented out to tenants, which became the medieval village. But Newcastle was no ordinary manor. Instead of having a resident lord, its profits went directly to the coffers of the king. Known as a royal manor, the first English monarch to benefit from it was King John, famous for his connections with the Magna Carta. The administrative core of Newcastle's medieval manor still survives, fossilised in the modern village landscape. As well as the earthen mound on which the castle once stood, elements of the other pillar of medieval community life, the parish church, survive at the site of the present Church of Ireland. The building you see today dates to the 15th century but it is very likely that it was built on the site of the original manorial church. Between the church and castle is another survivor of medieval Newcastle life, the village green. Its story, and that of the settlement itself, are told in our next track. If you are listening while walking our trail, you can find out more about medieval life in Newcastle on the other side of panel A. The Medieval Village Between the castle and church stood the Medieval Village Green, part of which still survives where you are standing today. This was the hub of medieval daily life, a place where people met to trade, to mingle and to share news. It was also a place for fun and the rough and tumble of medieval games, which could get very rough. In 1308, one of those games proved particularly costly for local men, John McCorkin and William Bernard. As they were playing at ball in Newcastle, a heavy collision caused John's knife to burst through its sheath, stabbing poor William in the leg. While William was badly injured, it hurt John in the pocket as he had to pay five shillings damages. Newcastle was an Anglo-Norman village, but the people swapping stories on the medieval village green were likely a mixed bunch. There would have been new settlers from England and Wales, but there were also some Irish families who had made their homes in the area for generations. History has preserved a handful of these names of Newcastle's ordinary medieval inhabitants, and they show how diverse it was. Among them were Walter Le White, 
Yerward the Welshman, and Elias Winchester. Medieval tenants rented their plots from the manorial lord, which in Newcastle was the king. Throughout this period, it was part of what was known as the Pale. This zone around Dublin was at the heart of the Anglo-Norman settlement in Ireland. It remained a region of strong English control for centuries. Depending on the fortunes of the English colony, Newcastle could find itself on the dangerous borderlands between Irish and English control. In the 14th century, Gaelic Irish from the nearby Dublin and Wicklow Mountains regularly attacked Newcastle's residents. By the 15th century, Newcastle's villagers were being called out to help construct a new line of demarcation and defence, which became known as the Pale Ditch. Newcastle's fortunes had improved by the start of the 17th century. Then it was said to be one of the best villages in the county Dublin. It had a weekly market and two fairs taking place every year. And in 1612, it even became a parliamentary borough. This allowed it to send two representatives to sit in the Irish Parliament. But more troubled years lay ahead. The village again found itself in a war zone during the tumultuous 1641 rebellion. Multiple occupations by soldiers caused many of the inhabitants to lose their homes and possessions. Unsurprisingly, the population collapsed. Newcastle struggled to recover and by the end of the 18th century, it was described as a shabby village. There were more hard times to come, but better days for the community also lay ahead. To hear about some of those who made a success of life in Newcastle and the agriculture that sustained them, make your way southwest along the Athco Road and Panel B. Agriculture and Tower Houses Welcome to Athgo and Panel B of our Heritage Trail. Medieval Newcastle built its economy on agriculture. For the most successful and wealthiest of the village's residents, this brought material rewards. Some of them chose to express their good fortune in the homes they built. At least seven stone tower houses once stood in Newcastle. These magnificent fortified buildings likely belonged to prominent merchants and farmers. Two of them can still be seen today, at Glebe and at Go, where you are now. They boast architecture like fireplaces and stair turrets, and even murder holes, a defensive feature which allowed residents to hurl deadly projectiles down on any unwanted visitors. The profitability of Newcastle's agricultural economy was built on innovations like the three-field system that the Anglo-Normans introduced. The tenants farmed in large open fields, which were divided into individual strips. In order to make sure they kept the ground enriched and fertile, they practised crop rotation. One year they might plant wheat, while the next might see them sow oats or legumes. But once every three years, they made sure to plant nothing at all, recognising that doing so allowed the ground time to replenish. The other important agricultural output from medieval Newcastle came in livestock, especially in the cattle that were so important to the Irish economy. These animals could be slaughtered locally or exported on the hoof, a highly sought-after source of mobile wealth. Long after the medieval period had ended, agriculture maintained its importance in Newcastle. Initially, many of the farms that emerged were relatively small, but that began to change in the 19th century. Large farmers, 
known as graziers, began to accumulate large tracts of land. They did so to fulfil a very specific need in the Irish economy. Cattle came from all over Ireland to Dublin markets like Smithfield, often undertaking long journeys. Grazier farms, like those in Newcastle, were used as staging posts to fatten up the animals before sale. One such farm, which developed near here in Athgo, had an especially fascinating story. The graziers there often took in cattle from County Kerry, which travelled by train from the kingdom to Hazel Hatch. Once fattened, they travelled on to Smithfield or Dublin Port, bound for Europe. In the 20th century, the Land Commission broke up the huge farm, dividing it into a number of smaller dairy farms. One of them was purchased by one of the Kerry families, who used to send their animals to the very same fields, maintaining an association with the land that continues even today. As we walk back into the village, a former thatched cottage can be seen at the road junction. This building was built in the 1840s and it was once McAvoy's pub, where many social events relating to the agricultural life of the village were held. We will now make our way to where the tour started and find Panel C, which tells the long and rich story of education in Newcastle. St. Finian's National School. Welcome to Panel C, the story of education in the village. Newcastle has been home to a national school for almost 200 years. Over 500 pupils attend St. Finian's National School today and they are the latest among the thousands who have learned their ABCs in the heart of the village. It is a legacy that began in 1825, when Newcastle's very first school opened its doors. This building still survives today and is right in front of you. It is affectionately called the Old Den by locals. The small school catered to Newcastle's children for over a century, until the new school, which you can see beside it, was built in 1930. This was replaced in turn by the Modern School, which opened in 1976. Education immediately became popular in Newcastle. In the 1830s, more than 120 children were packed into the old den each day. The school was segregated, with the boys taking their lessons on the ground floor, while the girls were upstairs. In those early days, only about 25% of the pupils were girls. The children's school week ran for six days, Monday to Saturday, and for six hours each day. Though relatively cheap, education came at a price, and only those who could afford it could attend. In 1834, a week's schooling could cost anything from one to three pence. The students who attended the old den learned their lessons seated at large wooden desks designed to seat ten children. You can see an artist's reconstruction of what a day in the old den was like on the panel in front of you. For many, it was the only schooling they would ever receive and it provided them with the basics necessary to help further themselves. Local children are not the only ones to have taken their first steps towards reading and writing in Newcastle. Just outside of Newcastle is Peamount Hospital, founded in 1912 as a tuberculosis sanatorium by the Women's National Health Association. At one point, it housed 700 adults and 150 children the hospital sought to cater to the educational needs of some of its younger patients. For many years, it maintained Skull Nave Finine on its grounds, which had three staff. 
thankfully, advances in children's TB treatment eventually allowed this special school to close its doors forever. Having heard about the story of education in Newcastle, let's now make the short trip east along Main Street and St Finian's Roman Catholic Church, where our story continues. St Finian's Roman Catholic Church Welcome to Panel D and St Finian's Roman Catholic Church, located right at the centre of Newcastle Village. For local Catholics, attending Mass was not always quite so straightforward. The Reformation of the 16th century left Newcastle's Catholics without a place of worship. Despite the religious intolerance they faced, by the 1680s they had managed to establish a small Mass house. It was located on Athco Hill, a short distance from the village. To reach it, residents had to travel along a small mass path. Before entering the tiny chapel for prayer, the faithful would hitch their animals to granite posts. Remarkably, these poignant remnants of penal times are still there to be seen. Thankfully, conditions for Irish Catholics had begun to improve by the first years of the 19th century increasing tolerance would eventually bring Catholic emancipation in 1829. But by that date, Newcastle's parishioners had already been enjoying a new church for more than 15 years. The man credited with its construction was Father Andrew Hart. Keen to establish the central role of the Catholic faith in local life, he selected a prominent site in Newcastle Centre for a new house of worship in 1812. Newcastle people were instrumental in funding its construction. Rallying to his call, they gave their time, their resources and their energy in order to see it built. The result was St Finian's Roman Catholic Church, completed in 1813. It is still the same church you see before you today. Constructed in a simple Gothic style, the building has seen a number of additions over the years. The altar is lit by three windows imported from Tours, France, in 1868. The altar itself dates to 1869. In 1910, six new windows were added in the body of the church. It is thought that they may have been made in Dublin's Early and Company, one of Ireland's great ecclesiastical decorators. These additions have added to the architectural appeal of the church, but it still retains many of its 1813 features. As such, it continues to represent a monument to the industry and dedication of Newcastle's 19th century congregation. Having explored some of Newcastle's later history, let's once again step back in time to the village's medieval origins. Continue east along Main Street until you reach panel E and the story of a remarkable medieval survival. The Burgage Plots. Congratulations, you have made it to panel E, where we return to the Middle Ages. Newcastle is home to one of the best-preserved medieval village landscapes in Ireland, which can be seen all around you. It survives in the long, narrow property strips that can be seen at many points along Newcastle's main street. These are traces of what are called burgage plots. Remarkably, these are the very same plots that were occupied by Newcastle's first medieval tenants. Typical of Anglo-Norman settlements, they have been in use for hundreds of years since the village was first laid out. Newcastle's medieval residents rented these plots from the King's representative, who was based in the nearby manor at Newcastle's Mott. 
they built their homes and workshops facing the street, using the rear of their plots as gardens and yards. You can get an idea of what Newcastle's medieval main street once looked like from the artist's visualisation on the panel in front of you. While some of the wealthier inhabitants constructed buildings of stone, most lived their lives under wood, turf and thatch. Some built longhouses, which were divided between a family and their animals. Keeping the animals close had its benefits, particularly as a source of heat during winter. Others constructed separate byres for their livestock. For those who engaged in crafts, such as blacksmithing or woodworking, the burgage system provided easy and direct access to the hustle and bustle of the medieval market town. While important, these property plots were just one part of Newcastle's medieval land system. Beyond them were the large fields that were given over to the villagers' crops. These open areas were divided into strips where each tenant could grow their chosen crop. To the east, north and west of the main settlement was Newcastle's commonage. Here, livestock could graze together under the ever-watchful eye of local herders and shepherds. It was these animals that were most often targeted by raiding parties from the nearby mountains, a threat that called for constant vigilance. For our next stop, we are going to journey even further into the mists of time, before Newcastle Village existed and before kings were being crowned on Lion's Hill. Continue east, on the same side of the street, as we make our way towards Panel F, and a meeting with some prehistoric Dubliners. Balana Kelly's Prehistoric and Early Medieval Landscapes. Welcome to Panel F, where we find out about the oldest evidence for life in Newcastle. As we will discover, it was an area that was inhabited long before the arrival of the Anglo-Normans. The 21st century development of the town has revealed traces of this prehistoric and early medieval past. Some of the most striking evidence emerged here in Ballinakelly townland. Archaeologists working on the new developments that surround us uncovered the stories of the lives and deaths of local people stretching across millennia, all the way back to the Bronze Age, which took place in Ireland from 2500 BC to 500 BC approximately. More than 3,000 years ago, Newcastle's Bronze Age population were attracted to Ballinakelly by the views it offered over the Liffey Plain and towards the Dublin Mountains. They decided that this was the perfect spot to bury their dead. Over the years, they brought the cremated remains of their family, friends and community here. Some they interred in simple pits, while others were placed in a small seven metre wide monument known as a ring ditch. One burial during the Middle Bronze Age was accompanied by a pottery urn. Ballinakelly's ritual and ceremonial importance was reinforced in other ways. You can explore an artist's visualisation of how these Ballinakelly cremation and burial ceremonies may have looked on the panel. The prehistoric community buried other things here, such as a saddle quern, which they had used for grinding crops. It was carefully positioned beside the ring ditch. That wasn't all. They also dug a massive pit, which stretched 16 metres wide and nearly 3 metres deep. When it filled with water, they heated it up using hot stones. They may have done this to prepare meat or perhaps to create steam for a sauna. Whatever its purpose, it was clearly an important site of ritual. Once they had finished with it, they placed a number of bundles of straw into the pit. 
With these bundles, they placed a prized possession, a bronze palstave, which is a type of axe. Metal was rare in this period, and this was a high-status object. It signifies just how important a place Ballinacelli was. The local landscape retained its attraction for centuries to come. In the early medieval period, more than 1,000 years ago, Ballinacelli was a thriving area of settlement. Local farmers built two fortified homes here. One stood behind banks and ditches that enclosed an area more than 40 metres across. Archaeologists found many artefacts associated with their daily lives here. Discoveries such as iron knives, cloak pins and loom weights provided a picture of life behind these early medieval fences. Ballinacelli became the final resting place of some of these early medieval farmers, just as it had been for the Bronze Age community. Almost 1,500 years ago, the remains of one of them were interred close to one of the enclosure ditches. Nearby was another marker of the humanity of these past people. Another grave contained the carefully buried remains of a small dog placed in the ground as if curled up asleep. The care taken with the animal indicates it was a much-loved member of one early medieval Ballinacelli family, a bond that translates across the chasm of time. From the locality's prehistoric and early medieval past, we are going to shoot forward to more recent times to learn about some of Newcastle's most important industrial heritage. Continue east until you reach the roundabout and then turn left onto Grant's Drive and the Green Oak Business Park, where you will find Panel G. Green Oak Mills. Welcome to Panel G, and what is now Green Oak Business Park. The park you are now standing in is just the latest manifestation of Newcastle industry at this spot. Indeed, Green Oak has been at the centre of innovation in Newcastle for more than two centuries. One of the first enterprises to flourish here was Green Oak Mills, which opened its doors in the 18th century. Housed in a beautiful four-storey building on the Griffin River, the mill produced flour and animal feed for market until well into the 20th century. It also became a focus of timber production, harnessing water power to help local craftsmen create a range of wooden objects. The mill became an iconic and much-loved local structure. In 1957, Another local landmark and new business was created. Rathcool Products Limited founded the Mushroom Farm. The secret to growing fungi is near total darkness. In order to create the perfect conditions, a series of distinctive curved sheds were built for the purpose. Inside, local workers toiled to maintain the conditions needed to nurture the mushroom crop. When mushroom production ceased in the 1970s, the mushroom farm was converted into a series of workshops and sheds. This became the Green Oak Enterprise Centre and represented the first steps on the road towards the bustling modern business park that occupies the site today. It is still managed by the McCarthy family, who first established the mushroom farm all those years ago. Today, the park remains just as much a part of the industrial landscape of Newcastle as the mills that went before it. It has further cemented its place in the local community by becoming the home of Peamount FC, one of the region's most important and successful sports clubs. We will learn more about the football club and the area's aviation history at our next stop. Continue north along Grant's Drive as far as you can, then turn left onto College Road, where you will find 
panel H. P-mount FC. Welcome to Panel H and the story of a remarkable sporting club. Newcastle may be a small county Dublin village, but it can boast one of the most important and successful soccer clubs on the island. It is home to Ireland's first ever representatives in the Champions League knockout stages, P-mount United FC. First formed in 1983, the club takes its name from Peamount Hospital, where it played its first games. Though it has long since moved on from the hospital grounds, the club crest still bears a medical cross to mark that association. The first team consisted of scouts from Newcastle's 73rd Troop. From those humble origins almost 40 years ago, Peamount has enjoyed a meteoric rise. The hard work and dedication of its staff and volunteers has seen the club grow to over 600 members. Through various age groups and divisions, women and men, boys and girls of all backgrounds and abilities, take to the field wearing P-mounts green and black. Since the 2005-2006 season, the club have made their home at Green Oak Industrial Estate. Two of the men's teams compete in the Leinster Senior League, regarded as the most competitive league in the country. Since first competing in 1986-87, they have enjoyed numerous league, shield and cup victories. It is a success matched by the women's team, one of the founder members of the Women's National League. It was the P-Mount women who secured history in the Champions League, following their treble glory of 2010. Their European run in 2011-2012 was only ended by the mighty Paris Saint-Germain. A host of the club's players have swapped the green of Piemont for the green of Ireland. The conveyor belt of internationals includes players like world champion boxer Katie Taylor, and striker Stephanie Roach. In 2013, Stephanie shared the stage with world-famous footballers James Rodriguez and Robin Van Persie as a finalist for FIFA's Pushkas Award, a result of her wonder goal for P-Mount against Wexford Youths. She and the other senior club members, past and present, continue to serve as an inspiration for future generations of P-Mount footballers. It's not far to our next stop. Just step to the rear of this panel to find out about Baldonnell Aerodrome and one of Ireland's most important aviation centres. Baldonnell Aerodrome. Our trail continues at Panel H with the story of Casement Aerodrome, better known as Baldonnell one of the most important airports in Ireland. It can be found just 3.5 kilometres to the northeast. Baldonnell is the home of the Irish Air Corps, who are responsible for the defence of Ireland's airspace and providing support to the state. As well as being home to military headquarters, Baldonnell also houses the Garda Air Support Unit. Formed in 1996, its helicopters provide policing support across the nation on a daily basis. Baldonnell is a place steeped in Irish aviation history. It became active in September 1918, less than 15 years after the Wright brothers' first successful flight. The first wheels to touch down belonged to the newly formed Royal Air Force. Though it was established during the First World War, it was a different conflict that brought Baldonnell its earliest dramatic moment. As the Irish War of Independence gathered pace, the IRA looked around for targets to strike in their search for arms and ammunition. They settled on Baldonnell. 
On the 28th of August 1920, Republican volunteers successfully infiltrated to the base, carrying off a store of weapons, military documents, codes and ciphers. The IRA raid wasn't Baldonnell's last involvement in Ireland's revolutionary struggle. As the war intensified, the British sought to use air power to their advantage. They began to fly sorties seeking to locate enemy personnel in the countryside. The RAF deployed DH-9A light bombers and Bristol F-2B fighters against the IRA, but their contribution did not prove decisive. The last British planes left the base in May 1922, and just weeks later it was occupied by aircraft of the provisional Irish government. Baldonnell's aviation legacy is not just a military one. Perhaps the most famous flight ever to leave the aerodrome took to the skies on the 12th of April 1928. A Junkers W33 with a crew of three men, Germans Ehrenfried Gunther, Freer von Hunfeld and Hermann Kohl, along with Dubliner James Fitzmaurice, departed Baldonnell. The flight was an attempt at the record for the first ever east-west flight from Europe to America. Although catastrophe nearly befell the dangerous record-breaking attempt at the outset. As the plane was taxiing out on the runway at Baldonnell, Fitzmaurice saw a sheep wander directly in front of the plane. Fitzmaurice shouted at the top of his lungs and luckily the plane had enough momentum to start ascending and avoid the sheep who was oblivious to the havoc he could have caused. The German-Irish team flew for over 36 hours and on the 13th of April landed on Greenlee Island, which is situated between Labrador and Newfoundland. The crew had originally planned to land in New York, but few leaks during the flight and a faulty compass meant that they had to strike land as soon as possible. After flying over the frozen, empty landscape of the Arctic, they eventually spotted a lighthouse on the little-known Greenlee Island, which became renowned across the world once news of the remarkable journey became public. The crew of the Bremen spent two months travelling around the United States of America and were celebrated as heroes. Fitzmaurice is recorded as saying In Irish air transport much has been achieved and a great future develops of which our people will be justly proud. I feel certain that in that pride of achievement the adventure of the Bremen will be seen in all its full significance and that my dead comrades and I will therefore not soon be forgotten. Though less spectacular, Baldonnell was also the scene of another first in 1936, one that had major ramifications for the Irish nation. On the 27th of May that year, it bid farewell to an Aer Lingus flight to Bristol, the first Aer Lingus passenger flight in the history of the state. We will continue our tour by returning to a sporting theme at St. Finian's GAA Club. Turn left down Aylmer Road until you encounter Panel I as we head back towards the centre of Newcastle Village. St. Finian's GAA Club. Welcome to Panel I and Newcastle's other great sporting institution. St Finian's GAA Club has been one of the bedrocks of life in Newcastle since 1943. Its story mirrors the story of the village itself, growing and developing from small beginnings into a rich and diverse community. Back in the 40s, the club used the Cats Meadow as their first pitch, as Flanagan's Field was known. They next moved on to Dunbar's Field, behind the village pub, 
before finding a permanent home at Aylmer Road. The first game took place there in May 1987. The 80s were an important decade of expansion for the team. The juvenile teams were established in those years and have continued to grow in the decades since. Further improvements came in 1997, when the new clubhouse was built, and again in 2005, when new pitches and floodlights were installed. Over the years, the turf at St Finian's has seen some special days. One that stands out in the history of the club is the day Dublin came calling, the 10th of July 1993. In order to mark the 50th anniversary of the club's foundation, the inter-county team arrived to take on Roscommon in a challenge match. Dublin won the match by one point, with Paddy McGarry of St Finian's lining out in the blue Dublin jersey. St Finian's fields teams across all age groups and caters for both men and women. Some of the club's proudest successes have come at underage level, such as the Under-21 Championship won in 2004 and the Under-15 Championship in 2006. The commitment and energy of the club's volunteers and players is exemplary. As the club moves ever closer towards its centenary, its future at the heart of the Newcastle community is secure. Continue straight along Aylmer Road until you reach Main Street and retrace your steps back to the centre of the village. As you approach St Finian's Catholic Church, take a right onto Peamount Road, where you will find the last stop on our trail as we take a final trip into Newcastle's medieval past. The Glebelands. Welcome to the part of Newcastle known as the Glebelands and Panel J. As the village has developed and expanded, more and more evidence of Newcastle's past has emerged. Some of those discoveries were found here in Glebe Townland, which takes its name from the portion of land in Newcastle once given over to support the clergy. Old Glebe House which dates to 1720, provides a reminder of this past. It served as a rectory for the Church of Ireland clergy, and it is even said that Jonathan Swift, author of Gulliver's Travels, spent time here. In Glebe, archaeologists found traces of early medieval life, just as they had at Ballinakelly. A large oval enclosure 40 metres across, was discovered here. It probably represents the remains of a fortified farmstead, which we commonly know as a ring fort. These 1,000-year-old remains in Glebe were not identified through excavation. Instead, archaeologists used a technique called geophysical survey to peer beneath the soil without ever disturbing the ground. They did so by using a machine that probes the earth to measure the magnetism of the soil. Different types of human activity leave different magnetic traces, so measuring this magnetism allows archaeologists to plot the lines of things like old ditches, pits and fireplaces. It was this technique that revealed the large ring fort at Glebe. As a result, this early Newcastle farmstead was fully preserved. It lives on, surviving beneath the green space that you can see in front of you and providing an amenity for a new generation of village homes. Evidence for early medieval farmers was not all that was discovered at Glebe. Archaeological excavation also brought to light intriguing detail about the Anglo-Norman village. It included the remains of some of the original Burgage plot ditches. These were dug when the village was first established, 
in order to delineate the properties of different tenants. Running north from the main street, they are the very same medieval boundaries that are still in use across much of the village today, a fossilised medieval landscape. There was an even more exciting discovery. Glebe also produced evidence for a larger medieval ditch, one that travelled from east to west across the townland. It was substantial, one metre deep and up to 1.5 metres wide. Inside there were traces of a bank that had once loomed over it. Medieval villagers had clearly used the ditch as a handy place to throw rubbish, as butchered animal bone was found scattered along the base. This bank and ditch was not just another property boundary. Instead, this was the earthwork that had once enclosed the whole village, the borough boundary. It is the first evidence that the Anglo-Normans had chosen to demarcate their new settlement in this way, and is a window into the creation of the village of Newcastle. Please now move on to our next track on the audio guide, as we conclude our heritage tour. Conclusion You have now reached the end of our audio guide tour exploring the rich heritage of Newcastle Lions. We hope you have enjoyed this journey through the village's past and present. If you would like to discover more, why not consider exploring some of the other nearby sites? such as the ancient inauguration site of Lyons Hill, the Holy Well dedicated to St Finian, historic Peamount Hospital, or even Baldonnell Aerodrome, where you can make an appointment to visit the Air Corps Museum. Whatever you choose, we hope you enjoy your visit to our historic home. We hope you have enjoyed this guide. It was written and produced by Abarta Heritage on behalf of the Newcastle Lions Heritage Trail Committee. It was funded by Fingal Leader Partnership and South Dublin County Council. Special thanks to all the local organisations and groups who supported this initiative. The audio guide was written by Damien Shields and edited by Roisin Burke. Narration was by Paula Rouse and the guide was produced in Bluebird Studios, County Dublin, with sound engineer Declan Lonergan and produced by Tara Clark. If you would like to hear similar audio guides from other heritage sites around Ireland, please visit abartaheritage.ie.